we are on to Obadiah. Um, was that even a book of the Bible? Is it? It is in there. Okay. Between Amos and Jonah. Here we go. The vision of Obadiah is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All the allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise from Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down to slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march to the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut their fugitives, to cut their fugitives, nor the hands over their survivors in the day of their trouble, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will turn upon your own head. Okay, now, point of truth here. Before we just read this, how many of you had read the book of Obadiah ever? Anyone? Oh, a lot more than I suspected. Um, okay, this is full disclosure from me. If you have not read it, don't feel bad, because I have read this book five or six times before I had to study it. And let me tell you what I've done reading through the Bible, and I get to Obadiah, I'm like, oh, quick chapter, I read it. I didn't get a whole lot out of it. I was like, all right, the day of the Lord is near, you know, these Edomites, they're bad, I get all that, that's, you know, but, yeah, there we go, we're on to Jonah. Jonah's kind of fun. Obadiah, mm. So, I do a little studying on this, because every word of the Lord is supposed to be important to this, and it did open it up for me quite a bit, and hopefully... The same will happen to you, and I want to do two things. Number one is let's talk a little bit about Obadiah. We'll give you a little brief history so that you can kind of understand what's going on. And then number two, what's it say to me? I mean, how, how can I really apply this to my life? So first of all, let's give you a little brief history of Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet, and he was considered one of the minor prophets. Now, being a minor prophet does not mean that he was less important. Being a minor prophet only means that his book wasn't as large as all the, of the major prophets. Uh, like Isaiah, I mean, he had a book, big book, so he was called a major prophet. The rest of them were minor, just because it wasn't long. Didn't mean it was less important, just means shorter book. Okay, got that? It was written at the end of, uh, before Jesus, but when we go through the story, it was, it was during the Babylonian exile. They're actually, the Israelites were being enslaved and sent to Babylon at this time. So this book was written to the Israelites as a word of encouragement to them in one of their darkest, lowest, terrible times. 
And he was writing a word against the Edomites. Now, who were the Edomites? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And as we studied before, Jacob was also called Israel. Okay, so Jacob and Israel, sometimes they interchange those. Esau, kind of the same way with Edom. So you have Esau, Edom, Jacob, and Esau were brothers. Let's go a little bit just really quickly about some of the strife between those two. Esau was the older. Jacob was the younger. Jacob tricked Esau over and over and over again. So there's a little bit of strife there. They kind of came back together. But then Jacob's people left to go to Egypt. You guys all remember this from the story? If I shake their head, yeah, we got it. They get enslaved by the, the uh, Egyptians. They come back, and this is close to where we're at. we will be at to, uh, next week. They come back. They go by the land of the Edomites. They're their cousins. They're their people. The, and they say, you know what, here's the deal. Okay, guys, Israelites, you can come by here. This is what we promise you. If you don't attack us, we won't attack you. A little more strife. Well, the Israelites, go, they go into the land of Canaan. Then years after that, the Babylonians come in, they wipe out Jerusalem, they put them in chains, the Israelites are being passed by. I'm going to have a picture of the city of Petra, which is where the Edomites lived. And when we read about how they soared like eagles and they made their cities in the clefts of the rocks, this is what they were talking about. We have another picture as well. They had this city that they built right into the cliff. They, historians were saying that it only took like 20 people to defend this place against armies of hundreds and thousands. And you might be thinking, well, what happened to these people? Well, we don't know exactly know for sure, except we know that they're just a footnote of a footnote in the, the book of history. We don't really know much about them except archaeologically with their city and what we know from Obadiah and a couple of stories in the Bible. And at this point... You might be thinking, okay, Brian, I know where you're going to go with this. I'm a Christian. I, I, I love God. And I tell you what, I needed this word as well. I mean, things are, things are hard. Things are, things are really tough for me right now. And I see all these people kind of like the Edomites. I see them, and, and they've got the world by the tail, and things are great for them. So you know what, Brian? I needed someone to say they're going to get theirs. Well, if that's what you think this is about, uh, we're going to kind of turn that on its head. Because I don't think that's what God is trying to get at. Well, he's, he's trying to get the Edomites to repent, which they didn't do. But God is a God that he, he'll listen to repentance. What he's trying to get at is tell us the dangers of pride. And as I was reading this story, there's one proverb that just kept running through my mind over and over and over, and that is pri- that Proverbs 16, 18. It's pride goes before Destruction, or a lot of times we hear pride goes before a fall, either one. Pride goes before detection, a haughty spirit before a fall. And it goes on to say, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share the plunder with the proud. Better to be the Israelite walking along below the city of Petra than to be one of the Edomites, the proud and the mighty. So the more I started thinking about it, the more I thought, you know, this, this could be we Americans. How comfortable do we have it? How, how often do we kind of sit in our high place and we think we've got it made? We're secure. What the Proverbs is trying to get us to understand in 1618 is that humility 
is more valuable than all the fame, all the gold, where you're living, how comfortable you are, how comfortable you might not be, or position in this world. So we're going to talk about pride today. We're going to discuss three things about pride. Number one is the diagnosis of pride. Two, the destructiveness of pride. And lastly, what do we do about it? What's the antidote? So jumping right in, what is the diagnosis of pride? And you're saying, Brian, okay, we've got this. Why do we need a sermon on the diagnosis of pride? We all understand what pride is. We see it all the time. And that's kind of my point. It is so easy to see it in other people. So easy to see the person with the superiority complex, right? We can see that person, that that guy's got a problem with pride, and that guy's got a problem with pride. And honestly, when I was doing this sermon, I was writing it, I'm thinking, man, that person really does too, and this person does. And I thought, it's so hard to see it in the mirror. So hard to see myself. So let's talk about pride. Pride is needing to feel better than other people in some way. Pride is needing to feel better than other people in some way. Proverbs eleven twelve says, Whoever derides his neighbor has no sense. Obadiah 1, which we just read, You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. Pride makes us deride. Pride makes us gloat. The Edomites, they actually literally looked down upon the Israelites as they were passing by. But... We have this in us that we always want to compare ourselves to another person. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a wonderful pride chapter, and I want to read just a brief excerpt from that. He says, Pride gets no pleasure of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. Proud people are not really proud of being intelligent or successful or good-looking. They are proud of having more success, more intelligence, and better looks than the people around them. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And then he goes on to give us an, an example. He says, lust might drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but in lust, this man may actually want her. Pride drives a man to sleep with a beautiful woman as well, but only to prove that he can do it and do it over the others. He doesn't really get any pleasure from her. Okay, so let me give you a little less racy example here. Um, now, please, please, please don't think that I'm trying to be proudful with this example. Uh, but in my high school days, I was the sophomore class president, the junior class president, the senior class president, all in one year. Not really. Uh, <laughs> and I was also the French club president, and I never took, no, French club treasurer, sorry. And I never took French, wasn't part of French. Um, I would have been the freshman class president, but they didn't let you go. They didn't let you run for that as well. And let me tell you that um, I had no desire, no desire at all, of planning my class reunion. I had no desire to plan the junior prom. I kind of look like one of those guys, right? Not really. Uh, uh, the only reason I ran for these things is because I liked to win. I liked to win the election. I tell you what, I felt on cloud nine when I beat that person. The whole reason I ran. Well, I also ran because I knew it would look good on my college resume. I knew that it would help me get scholarships. But what if this becomes the master narrative of our lives? That we don't really do things because we like it, but because we're trying to make a case for ourselves. We're trying 
to prove to ourselves and we're trying to prove to others that we count, that we're a person of consequence. Arthur Miller wrote a play called After the Fall, and his main character says this, For years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of arguments. When you are young, you prove how brave or how smart you are. Then when you're a little older, what a good lover you are. Later, what a good husband or a father you are. Finally, how wise, powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I now see there was an assumption. A person moves on a path towards, I don't know, toward being justified or condemned, a verdict anyway. My disaster happened when I looked up one day and realized the bench was empty. No God, no judge in sight. All that remained was the endless argument with myself, the litigation for existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying, of course, disaster. And what's so powerful of this is that we have a character who, who doesn't believe in God, and maybe this is Arthur Miller even saying he doesn't believe in God, but that doesn't matter. Actually, this proves my point that whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, every human being unavoidably is out there earning their salvation. We're all unsatisfied enough, incomplete in some way. We're all trying to build that resume, constantly arguing in a court, spinning the case, accruing evidence. And it's whether you believe in God or not. We all do this because we're trying to reach a verdict. And what's the verdict? Whether or not I'm someone that counts. Am I a person of consequence? Am I okay? Am I worth something? If you're a religious person, you're doing this towards God. If you don't believe in God, you're doing it anyway. And you know what the easiest way to do this? Easiest way to do this? Is we find someone that we're better than, and we remind ourselves that we're better, and we remind them as well. It's easy. Groups of people everywhere. You have on this side, you have the really hip and the, the well, you know, the people that get $100 haircuts. And, and they're ironic, and they're funny, and they know all, have all the coolest gadgets, and they look at those people and they say, why don't they have an iPhone 5? I'm better than them because I've got the coolest stuff. And I'm funny, and I watch the really cool things, and I've got Starbucks coffee, and then you've got these people over here. And what do they do? They say, well, we're down to earth. We don't spend so much money on those frivolous things. Why would they do that? We're better than that. Everybody's doing it. You've got the religious conservatives that look at the liberals and they say, we care about family. They don't. They're terrible. You've got the liberals and they say, we're open-minded and we're free from the shackles of sin and we're accepting. Those people aren't. We're better than them. Whether you're atheist, religious, Christian, liberal, conservative, Muslim, Jew, whatever. We're all doing this. We all need to feel better than other people. It's an endless trial and evidence that we're trying to get to make sure that we are important. And that's the first, first thing that pride is. Second thing is that pride needs to take God's place. Pride needs to take place. In Proverbs 16, 19, it talked about that, um, used the word pride, and the Hebrew word they use there is ga'on. Now, the funny thing about the Hebrew word being used for pride, ga'on, is ga'on actually means supreme majesty. And everywhere else, the word is used for God. 
And it's funny that they would use it for pride. Number one is because, obviously, we people are trying to be God when we're being prideful. Every human being's heart wants to be its own supreme being. We all want to be our own gods. We want to find meaning on, for life on our own. And that's what creates this endless scrambling for the evidence to get the verdict. Lewis Smedes, who's Christian Arthur, he writes this, writes this. Pride in the spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for your own self. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on your own resources, and that's the greatest delusion. That's the fantasy of all fantasies, the cosmic put on. And he goes on to write, this isn't going to be on the screen, but just as important. It says, the fantasy that we can make it as our own God leaves us empty at the center. We are therefore attacked by demons of fear and anxiety all the time. We learn to swagger. We learn to bluff. Deep down inside, we are afraid that we can't make it our own. Therefore, therefore, we look around for people to use as buttresses for our shaky ego that our pride has created. We look for those people. Now, every situation calls forth the question, what can I get out of this situation to support the need of my ego for power and applause? And every new person elicits the question, how can this person contribute to my need that I am better than all of these people? Life becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster your own self and avoid others in using you the exact way you would use them. So pride is needing to feel better than other people in some way. Pride is, needs to take God's place. And lastly, pride is constantly aware of itself. Pride makes you self-absorbed. Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. I, even when I'm doing this sermon, I'm, I'm wondering, I wonder what they think. Are they paying attention? Will they come up to me afterwards and say, that was a really good job, because then my ego's... So we're constantly wondering, am I doing well? Am I good enough? Am I good-looking enough? And when does it stop? If someone is trying to put up a picture, and someone else walks along and says, uh, hey, um, your picture's a little cockeyed. You know, maybe the nail needs to be moved down here, and the person says, it's not about the nail. No, not, okay, anybody that watched that, so. If you didn't, YouTube it. It's not about the nail. It's, it's, it's good. Well, if, if the person that takes advice, they understand that it's about the nail, it's about the hammer, it's about the picture, but the proud person, what do they do? The proud person says, I know how to hang a picture. We well, think I'm stupid. It becomes all about them, doesn't it? Okay, another goofy analogy. Our body parts. If I come home from work one day and I say, hey, Tracy, Tracy says, how was your day? I said, guess what? My elbow, it worked awesome. My elbow was amazing today. Strum guitar, just perfect. I'd give my elbow a high five if I could do that sort of thing. The elbow was, was great. When do we give, when do we talk about our body parts? We talk about our body parts when they're hurting, right? When there's something wrong. When the tooth aches, when the elbow hurts, that's when they draw attention to themselves. So now let's talk about the ego. How often do we think about our ego? Our ego, minutes, hours, right? Have I been snubbed? 
Am I being ignored? Have my feelings been hurt? Let me tell you what, it's not your feelings that are hurt, it's your ego that has been hurt. We get down on ourselves. And what does this mean? It means that there is something really, really, really wrong with our egos. And you might be sitting back there and you're thinking, Brian, hey, this is great because I've got low self-esteem. Well, low self-esteem, it's no different than the person with a superiority complex. You're still, what are you doing? Still thinking about how bad you are all the time. You know what the big difference between the low self-esteem and the person with superiority complex is? You're both on trial. One is losing the case and the other's winning the case. Only difference. So that's what pride is, but what does pride do? Second point, the destructiveness of pride. It says pride goes before destruction. Now it does not say Pride might lead before to destruction. No, it is saying that pride is in a parade. You've got the horses marching down. You've got the fire engines. Then pride comes, and everything is going to blow up after that. That's what he's saying. It doesn't say, you know, this is something that you can, you know, just, just work at it. No, it's saying that this is going to be your downfall. And the Bible constantly gives us reasons we shouldn't be proud. Practical reasons. All sorts of practical reasons. Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. We talk about people getting advice. The proud person that doesn't get advice, what happens to them? They get in this endless cycle, don't they, of doing something over and over and over again, the same results. And why? It's because they won't take advice from anybody. Obadiah 1.3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. It also skews how we th- see things, doesn't it? Now, how many of you have heard a proud person say something really, really, really dumb? Any of you? And you're thinking, you know what? If, if you really could see reality, you would have never said that. Okay, so you that have raised your hands, how many of you that proud person was you? Yeah, I, that's, that's me. I'm telling on myself. The dumb things that I've said... Nine times out of ten, it's because I'm, I'm trying to let someone know how much more important than I am than they are. So there's all sorts of practical reasons that, of why we shouldn't be proudful. But I want to tell you there's a scarier reason. And that is that there's a cosmic reason that it will lead to destruction. See, in Proverbs 15.25, it says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. The Lord tears the house down. But he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. Proverbs 16, 19. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. It's better to be with the Israelites than up in the clefts of the rocks. And these are just a couple examples. You go through the entire Bible and you see example after example after example how God, he, he tears down the proud and he lifts, up the, he lifts up the poor. He lifts up the widow, the outsider, because God loves the weak. God loves the people. This is the most encouraging thing to me with, about God is that God loves the loser. God loves the underdog. He loves the orphan. He loves the widow. And why is this so important? Well, we're going to get a little theological on you. This is important because God is a trinity. And we've talked about the Trinity before, but I, and I'm not going to go in so deep into um, what it is, is more into how it works. 
So the Trinity is consists of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all, they're three in one. But I want to tell you how it works. God the Father will give glory to Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus the Son gives glory to the Father and to the Spirit. The Spirit gives glory to the Father and the Son. They don't give glory to themselves. They're consistently adoring the other two. They're always praising the other two. They are always lifting the other two up. There is a dance of love that is going on between these three beings. Each person in the Trinity centers on the other. So, with this in mind, at the heart of the universe, the very center of the being of God is self-giving love. So, if you are in the business of worried about getting yours, of getting recognition, of getting acclaimed, of making sure that everybody notices, notices you, of making sure that people see what you have done. And we religious people, we can be pretty good at this. But if you're in the business of always trying to gain that recognition, I want you to understand that you are on a collision course with the very being and the fabric of who God is. at the center and the core of who God is, is a God of self-giving love. God says in Isaiah 50, 57, 15, he says, I live in the high and holy place, but also the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God is awesome, he's amazing, but he loves the loser. We see that in Obadiah. We see that with his people. So this is what pride is and why it's so destructive, but what is the antidote? Um, here's the antidote for pride. Proverbs 15:33. Wisdom is the instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. And the word honor here, it really means supreme glory. The humble are the people that don't think they're important. And only until you figure that out will you get the glory that never fades. Only the people that are sure they are not important will get glory forever. There's a glory that will only come to the humble. God used the barren woman. God uses the girl that nobody ever won and the boy that was completely forgotten. And why does God use those people all throughout the Bible and through our lives today? Why does God... Why is he on the side of the loser? Is it just a sense of poetic justice, or is there something deeper going on? Well, when God came into this world, how did he come? Came into a, into a manger, into a, an insignificant little colony of the Roman Empire to parents that had no acclaim. As he grew up, he was poor. Most of his adult life, he was homeless. And then, in his final days, all of his friends deserted him, and he died a horrible, terrible, embarrassing, humiliating, awful, painful death. Now, is this a way to win the world? If you're a God of self-giving love, it most definitely is. See, if God came as a great philosopher... To come to him, we would have to be great philosophers. If God came 
is this morally, morally strong man. We'd all have to be morally strong. But no, he came as a poor man. He came as one who lived a life that we were too weak to live. He came and died a death that we were unwilling to admit that we even needed. And this glory can only be achieved through humility. And it's a message that everybody can come to. So how do we get this gift of glory that Jesus wants us to have? Well, here's my last illustration. Let's say it's your birthday, and somebody comes up to you and they said, hey, I've been meaning to give you this present for a long time. And you're like, well, cool, and it's wrapped in a really shiny, nice box, and, and they're like, yeah, I really think you need this. I think you'll love this present. So you, you open it up, and up in, inside the present is underarm deodorant. Or a bar of soap. And they say, you know what, you really need this. There are some gifts that the only way you can receive them is kind of be humiliated. Does that make sense? Now, you may need it, but it's still, it's a slap in the face, right? I want you to understand that we all were so bad. We were all so terrible. We were so stinky with our lives that the only way that we could be cleaned up, the only way that we, could, that we could be made pure and we could come before God is for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come down and die for our sins. We stink that much. And until we're humble enough to accept that gift, can we receive it? Now, it's a wonderful gift to receive. I mean, it's, it's amazing to be clean, right? But do you recognize the fact that we're dirty and that we're prideful? And this is the last thing I want you to just think about. Can we stop thinking about ourselves so much? And what would your life look like if you did? And secondly, what would our church look like if we were a church completely and totally of self-giving love? All right, would you stand, please? Dear Heavenly Father, Help us have less pride. Help us to re receive that humiliating gift. God, I know this is hard, and I know when we leave here today, I'm, I'm going to probably still do the exact same thing and start cons just consider thinking about myself all the time. So, God, help me to understand that you took the place in that trial and that I don't have to worry about being on trial anymore because you paid the penalty for it. God, constantly keep reminding me of that. That's in your son's name I pray. Amen.